Welcome to Cultivating Curiosity, where we get down and dirty with the experts on all the ways science and agriculture touch our lives, from what we eat to how we live. I'm Emily Davenport. And I'm Jordan Powers. And we're from the University of Georgia's College of Agricultural and Environmental Sciences. We are here today with Chris Brayman, department head and professor in the Department of Entomology. Chris, thanks for joining us today. Delighted to be here. Can you start by telling us a bit about your background? Yes, I'm originally from farm and orchard country in upstate New York. And I was that girl running barefoot through fields and streams and woods, and then went off to school in forestry school, did graduate work in row crops, and then came to Georgia in 1989 and completely switched gears again and spent 27 years working on management plans for insects that affect turf and ornamentals, and then have spent my last seven years here in Athens as department head. Wow. (laughs) Quite a journey. Quite a journey, indeed. (laughs) And quite an inspiration that you can change course at any point. Well, and I think that is one of the things that I've really enjoyed about an academic career, because you can do that. You can reinvent yourself or identify new areas that really need some focus. For example, I switched gears uh, about 10 years ago and have really focused research effort on pollinator conservation. What caused you to switch gears in the first place from row crops to entomology? The opportunity for a wonderful job at the University of Georgia. Okay. (laughs) We promise that's not an app. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, my training, you know, IPM principles apply across commodities. And I received some encouragement to apply, and the rest is history. Okay. And IPM, for our listeners who might not be aware, is integrative pest management, right? Yes, that's right. We'll add a link to the IPM website where you can find important information about pests, weeds, and diseases in Georgia. Tell us a little bit about a typical day in the entomology department and as department head. Well, no two days are the same, and that's what I love about this job. I have the administrative side, and then I have also been able to keep my research and teaching. So I really love working with people. I may be biased. I think we have one of the most wonderful departments of entomology anywhere. But I also love working with the plants and the pollinators. And in the lab work or the research side, I do field work and lab work. So I've got the best of all worlds every place. So we know that you have been with the Department of Entomology here at UGA for quite some time. How has it changed throughout the time you've been at UGA? It's changed a lot. When I first came to UGA in 1989, we were actually four departments, each with its own department head, out of two colleges, Arts and Sciences and the College of Agricultural and Environmental Science, under one division chair. Over the course of my years here, we have really streamlined into one unified Department of Entomology. We're still statewide, and we just have tremendous um, breadth and balance in what we do. How do you think that kind of coming together of those four separate entities or four different kind of silos has benefited the department and in turn the industry? I think that it has made us much more, as you say, unified, but cohesive and collaborative. 
In other words, the collaboration now, I mentioned that we cover the gamut from the most applied to the most basic research. And what we see now is a lot of collaboration there uh, between those two types of science, which is really transformative and moves that needle. So you mentioned the research runs the gamut. What about the um, breadth of the department as far as insects? We know it's more than just bees, which might you might be biased <laughs> to, but what, what are people interested in studying in the entomology department? Oh, absolutely everything. <laughs> and, you know, we have uh, scientists that work on insect-microbial interactions. Lots of times that's vector biology, working with mosquitoes or kissing bugs. But then we have people that work in wetland ecology, so they're looking at aquatic insects. Household and structural entomology, all the things that can invade our homes that we don't want there. And then, of course, all of the IPM, Integrated Pest Management, And I'm going to put in a plug for IPPM, Integrated Pest and Pollinator Management, has become kind of the focus for most of our management programs. But they work on all sorts of food and fiber from cotton and peanuts and soybeans to peaches and blueberries. So we cover a lot of ground. It's a lot to think about. It's a lot to wrap your head around. What types of careers in entomology are available for graduates of the programs? A lot of exciting diversity there. So students can go into public health careers. They can go into research. They can go into education. Um, They can go to work for museums, botanical gardens, all sorts of opportunities, as well as what we would traditionally think in agriculture and pest control. The sky's the limit. How does entomology partner with industry? Well, industry partnerships are really important. From my experience, partnering with industry really just allows us to have magnified impact in all three of the land-grant missions, research, teaching, and extension. And I'm a little biased on this follow-up question here because I've been doing a lot of coverage on our new Orkin Professorship for Urban Entomology, which Dan Suter has that title. Can you talk a little bit about what the new Orkin Professorship means for the entomology department? Well, it means so much. That's a partnership that is really supporting the science and lets us move that transformational research out to a broader audience And it also means that our urban entomology program is going to remain strong. And that's not the case everywhere in the country. So I see this as a wonderful partnership, and we're grateful for the endowment. I also see it as probably just the first step into even more. I love that. Grateful for what is here and excited for what is next. And we'll link a story that we wrote on the Orchid Professorship in the show notes for our listeners if they'd like to learn more. You mentioned the Urban Entomology Program. Can you talk more about that, what that means for our listeners who might not know? Urban entomology um, has traditionally described household and structural entomology. So think of things like termites or ants or bed bugs or everybody's favorite, the cockroaches. So it's how to manage insects that we're just fine with outdoors, but we really don't want them invading our homes. Our team got a chance to go see uh, Dr. Suter and his bed bug demo station <laughs> last time we were in Griffin, and I don't think any of us will ever forget. <laughs> I've never looked at a hotel room the same way yeah. since that visit. Yeah. But it- I know what to look for now. <laughs> were you itching when you left? Maybe just a little bit. <laughs> How is the work 
that you all are doing in the entomology department, making an impact locally, nationally, and even internationally? Our entomology faculty, staff, and students really are having an impact, uh, not just locally, but absolutely globally. If I think about some of the work coming out of labs we've already mentioned, um, the work that's coming out of the Strand Lab can revolutionize the medical field and provide solutions for important diseases that are vectored by mosquitoes and also lead to some important new innovative management strategies for insect pests of field crops. And this basic research is basic research with an end goal in mind and can be translated into impact that directly affects not just Georgia growers or even regionally or nationally, but everybody worldwide. I think it's so easy for people to focus on what's happening in front of them and the project that they're working on. So to hear the impact that this is having across the globe is is an inspiration. And one thing that's very important to me is that we have alumni everywhere. So those next generation scientists are one way that I think we really have a big impact. I love that. We talked with Simmer and George in a previous episode a little bit about that. And uh, what did they call it? The academic family tree and being able to trace that back. (laughs) Yes. Um, And it's a cool thing to think about. It is really cool. Speaking of next generation scientists, how is the department educating the younger generation and the public about entomology? Ooh, that's one of the most fun things to me, <laughs> is public outreach. Now, our graduate students have a really important role to play in the outreach that we do as a department. And so they are our ambassadors, going lots of different places, but very often to schools, elementary schools, high schools. People can sign up to have them come out and demonstrate entomology and teach things that might just be uh, focal areas. Sometimes they want people to come out and talk about pollinators and pollinator gardens. Sometimes it's general entomology. But we also participate as a department in things like Insectable, that wonderful partnership between entomology and the botanical garden, where every year literally a thousand people come through and learn how important insects are to everyday life. And that is an incredible event. We got to go to our last one this spring, and it was just, I mean, my kids were thrilled. I was thrilled. <laughs> like, it was a blast across the board. And there, there's another kind of outreach component that I know actually just participated in the school that both of our children go to, the Insect Zoo. Can you talk a little bit about the Insect Zoo and the graduate students behind that? Yes, I love the Insect Zoo. And Me too. <laughs> I guess probably one of the more attractive things about the Insect Zoo is that we're able to maintain some exotic insects that are really showy and demonstrate things like camouflage with the giant walking sticks or the leaf insects. So people just really can connect with those, let alone the things like the tarantulas or the hissing cockroaches. Um, Not everybody is a huge fan of those, but we bring them along too. You'll find a fan somewhere of one of those, I'm sure. But (laughs) Exactly. They need their moment in the spotlight. (laughs) I do find it funny that I'm okay holding a Madagascar hissing cockroach, but if there's one in my house, I'm like, no, thank you, please. (laughs) I I have that thought in my head that I'm like, 
why am I so judgy against this one in my home? But I'll hold the big hissing ones. Right. Well, it's that whole urban entomology household structural thing. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. There's some history there. That's right. How did the insect zoo come about? Whose idea was that? I think we've had that for so long that I can't tell you what the legacy is exactly there. But that's always been a part of the Department of Entomology since I've been here. It's been here a long time. Okay. A long-standing history. Okay. I love yeah. that. That's cool. You talked about IPM and IPPM. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us more about both of those and um, what they encompass? Maybe just more about... Yeah, let me tell you a little more about the integrated part of the IPM. Sure. So really, that's just using all available strategies to manage what we have decided are pests. So not to focus on one single tactic, but to include uh, several others, and usually going for the biologically-based control methods first. And then when you add the other P in there, (laughs) integrated pest and pollinator management, that recognizes the importance of what management strategies do to pollinators. And pollinators are essential for uh, many of the crops that we are growing now. So as we develop these integrated pest management strategies, let's make sure that what we're doing does not negatively affect the pollinators that are so essential. And that is something I've heard for quite some time is what what impact is, you know, this spray or this treatment or whatnot having on those insects that I want to have around. Mm -hmm. So it's wonderful to hear that work is being done to make sure our pollinators are protected. I love that what all the researchers are thinking of, too. I just remember going and visiting entomology last year and looking at the blueberry what is it on uh, wasp? Oh yeah, and the spotted winged drosophila. Yes, thank you. Yes, yes, and I just thought that was so cool. Like you think of spraying pesticides on things, but then you can have this complete biological system that doesn't involve any chemicals at all, and it's just very cool. Oh, I'm very excited about the progress in that program, okay. and hopefully we will have a new biological control. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we have a TikTok video about that, so we can link that in the show notes so people can learn a little bit more about how maybe that teeny tiny wasp can control some fruit flies and blueberry crops. This is why Emily and I just geek out on all the science (laughs) behind what's going on. Well, and you know, it's like entomology is in many ways like the hidden world, and there's so much there for people to discover Like, I know this world really well. And sometimes you forget that not everybody does. So when you can show a tiny little parasitic wasp that can help you control this really important pest, then that's awesome. Awesome indeed. Switching gears a little bit, we know that you were the director of the Center for Urban Agriculture for about five years. Can you share more with us about the center's mission? Um, The center's mission um, is really about supporting all types of urban agriculture and supporting our own cooperative extension service by providing educational materials that county extension can use. And we'll link to some of those county extension resources in the show notes. You know, speaking of being, we just talked about being in a world and then realizing other people may not be as familiar with that world. Can you talk a little bit more about urban agriculture and what types of things you're talking about when you speak on urban ag? Well, urban agriculture has a very broad definition. And the history with the Center for Urban Agriculture had very much of a focus on the green industry. But of course, as we know, urban agriculture is much broader than that. And so... 
we have expanded, even while I was there, into urban agriculture food production. So locally grown, um, sometimes organic production, and even home horticulture. The Center for Urban Agriculture is housed within the University of Georgia College of Agricultural and Environmental Sciences. And I think the important thing is that it's non-departmental. It includes people from all departments and not just in our college. And it supports extension and research programs in sustainable turf grass, urban environment, nursery landscape, local food, professional training and certification, household and structural pest management, urban forestry. So they cover a lot of ground. A lot of amazing work being done out of the Center for Urban Ag, and we will uh, link their site in the show notes for listeners as well. What was your day-to-day like in that role as the director? It involved a lot of extension education, coordinated through the county delivery system. Uh, Building collaborations was a big part of almost every day, and just making those connections. So we know you gave a TED Talk last week, and it is Monday, the day we're recording this, and you gave a TED Talk on Friday. So first of all, thank you for joining us right at the heels of that amazing TED Talk, and we'll, of course, link that in the show notes for our listeners. While it's fresh in your mind, tell us a bit about what that experience was like. Well, it was a wonderful experience and a fabulous opportunity to have that platform to be able to advocate for pollinator protection and bee conservation. So it was truly marvelous. Tell us a little bit more about your talk. What it, You talked about the secrets of city bees. I think that's what it was called. Yes. <laughs> and I will go straight to the punchline that the secret of city bees is trees. So we looked at mainly the effect of landscape context, meaning number of trees nearby, intensity of development, or even proximity to farms, to be abundance and diversity on residential landscapes. And we were just overwhelmingly surprised at the bee diversity that we found. Coming down to the bottom line, we found that the amount of remnant forest in the city really impacted bee abundance and diversity. So we really need to keep forest cover uh, at the forefront when we are looking at conservation planning for mixed-use landscapes. And you know it makes total sense because historically the eastern United States was forested and then we were deforested here for um, cotton production and then we reforested and then we lost those trees again when we started building residential communities. And those remnant forests, uh, the trees, are really important. And nearly a third of the wild bees in the eastern United States are forest bees. I learned many new things <laughs> today. But I, but I think the focus is, is so much on the pollination of flowers mm-hmm. and crops that I feel like if you polled 100 people, forest is not the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah. yeah. And why is it the forest? What's the trees doing for the bees? So many questions. <laughs> so yes. many questions. So, yes. And these are questions that I have. And then what trees are the best for bees? You know, we can put together, and we have put together some guides to help people pick out trees that we know are good for bees. But, for example, uh, oaks are wind-pollinated, and they don't necessarily need the bees, but do bees use oaks? That's one of the things that we want to find out. And there's some exciting work going on all around the country. 
And what percentage of hardwoods would we need? How many trees do you need for the bees? And that's not to say that the flowering herbaceous plants are not important. They are important. But I think there has been little emphasis on the trees, and I think they're really uh, having an impact. I have so many more questions. <laughs> I feel like there's so much to unpack. We both have like episode. that spinning computer wheel yeah. in our brains <laughs> yeah. right now, just processing. I know that leaf litter is important for bees mm-hmm. overwintering. Is it is that the reason why they're important for city bees, or is it, it, it beyond can be, that? It can be, but it can also be that trees produce pollen. You know, they flower and, and produce pollen, and bees can use those trees. But also nesting habitat, right? So I think it's not just a single thing. I think it's a more complicated picture. Fascinating, complicated <laughs> yes. picture. So outside of the importance of trees, tell us a bit how you are helping pollinators in your life personally. Well, I am trying to do exactly what I'm asking other people to do. <laughs> Lead by example. <laughs> yeah. So let me just tell you a few things that I am doing and that I'm asking other people to do. And the number one thing is that we need to tolerate a little messiness in our yards and mm-hmm. gardens. And I can definitely already check that box. <laughs> <laughs> so consider leaving some bare ground in your yard because the vast majority of wild bees are ground nesting. So what you're doing is leaving space for them to set up homekeeping. (laughs) And then I also find that that is such a good excuse for the lawn police (laughs) that object to those bare spots in your yard. You can tell them the spots are intentional. We're we're inviting our bee friends over. That's right. It's the bee house. (laughs) But uh, when you are cleaning up flower gardens at the end of the season, leave some stems for nesting bees to have a home, cavity-dwelling bees. Instead of formal gardens, go for cottage gardens that have a riot of color all season long. Uh, Be sure that your bees have access to water and plant more trees for the bees. The access to water was one that I never fully thought about until we started bringing out my kids' water table and kiddie pool in the summer. So it's not chlorinated. It's just the garden hose. And the number of bees that will come up and even just sit on the pavement and get a drink of water. I was like, oh, you all are thirsty. (laughs) So I'm like, at least we can, you know, knock out two things. We've got the kids happy because they're playing in the water. And we've got the pollinators getting a little bit of a drink in the meantime. Yeah. I need to put up little bee drinking fountains at my house. I know, I'm like, I need to be more intentional about this because it only happens when there's a water play day. I know, right? I need to be more intentional about my bee hydration. That's right. Go hydrate your bees. There's a new campaign. (laughs) We could do some marketing around that. We could. Um, Well, we have a couple of listener questions for you, which this is a newer thing that we're doing on the podcast where people have been submitting their questions to ask, so... The first question has to do with leaf-footed bugs and how do we work with other beneficials to prevent this little fella? And tell us more about leaf-footed bugs if you know, (laughs) because I don't know what that is. Yes, leaf-footed bugs can show up uh, almost every year in the garden, and and they're called leaf-footed bugs because they have uh, an enlarged part on their hind legs. So they look like leaves. Their legs look like leaves, Hmm. literally. Okay. And they can be problems on tomatoes, for sure, but also on some other um, garden plants. Uh, sometimes they can reach really high numbers. Now, they do have some natural enemies, 
predators like assassin bugs, general predators. Uh, there are some parasitic flies that can attack leaf-footed bugs. But one thing that you can do is just to be real vigilant with the scouting. And lots of times insects reach large numbers, um, and it seems like it's overnight, but it's really not. Mm -hmm. So just to, to be on site and, and see egg masses or when they first hatch out. And lots of times just hand removal can take care of that. Uh, one thing, if we have a really large garden and you know that this is a problem uh, time and time again, you might consider some type of trap crop. Now, trap crop means you have something that is more attractive to the pests that you want to manage. You plant that earlier than your other plants. So they're up and growing before, say, your tomatoes come in. And one of the best things for leaf-footed bugs is sunflowers. Uh -huh. So there you get sunflowers. The keys there are to make sure you get those planted well ahead of time. And then also you just want to keep watch on the trap crop, and you may want to manage the leaf-footed bugs there, or you may be okay with just sacrificing those plants. I was going to say, once you have the trap crop, then what? You, you just answered that for me. You either sacrifice or you, you do your pest management on those. It's a little IPM in your garden. There right? we go. Yeah. I love it. Hopefully okay. we don't have to deal with them this year. But. Uh -huh. <laughs> I do have sunflowers in my garden, though, this year, so maybe I won't have to deal with there these bugs that go. I knew nothing about until five minutes ago. <laughs> so our next question is uh, from a first-time gardener. And they would like to know how to stay ahead of the pest game without hurting the good bugs in the garden. That's a great question. And I think I'm just going to go back to uh, what we were saying about leaf-footed bugs. Scout, scout, scout. Be out there and, and looking. So for whatever you're going to plant in the garden, do a little research. Find out what are going to be the major pests there and be out and looking for them so that you can maybe just do some hand re removal early and not have to deal with quite so many pests. And one thing I personally learned on that front with my first couple of gardens, and I feel like I reteach myself every year, the importance of turning the leaves over. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> because it's so easy, and I'm sure there's a scientific reason that so many pests are on the underside of the leaves. Maybe it's a built-in protection, but I'd go out and look, and I'm like, oh, everything's fine. And then the next day, I'm like, everything is clearly not fine anymore. <laughs> and you flip a leaf over, and all of a sudden, mm -hmm. you're like, there you all are, just munching away. <laughs> well, that's a great point uh, because close inspection of the plants really does mean, yep, turn those leaves over. Mm -hmm. And check the stems. And <laughs> yep. It's a labor of love. It and is. Another thing you might consider or people might consider doing is, you know, weave some flowers into your vegetable garden. You attract all of the beneficial insects and the pollinators, plus you get some cup flowers. Yeah. Who's there? Yeah. We have covered a lot of ground <laughs> today. Is there anything that we've missed that you want our listeners to know about the Department of Entomology, about the work coming out of the department? I just think that we have such a tremendous impact, and insects are so important and such a part of everybody's lives, even though they may not know it. So entomology is a great place to uh, build a career. 
I'm biased, but. (laughs) (laughs) And our undergraduate programs are, yes, in entomology, but also in applied biotechnology. And those two areas uh, mesh together really well to uh, make a student extremely competitive on the job market. So thank you for the opportunity to share a little bit about our department. Absolutely. Thank you again for joining us. It has been a wonderful time learning more. Thanks for listening to Cultivating Curiosity, a podcast produced by the UGA College of Agricultural and Environmental Sciences. A special thanks to Mason McClintock for our music and sound effects. Find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts.